0: Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob
1: Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Good evening, Thrive at 20 podcast listeners. We're very pleased to be joined by the newly promoted to Vice President of Operations, Jeff Baird for Crofters Organic Fruit Spreads. And if you've not tried Crofters Organic Fruit Spreads, uh, fruit, fruit spreads, <laughs> easy for me to say, they're <laughs> awesome. So Jeff, you were kind enough at a small mini plant tour that I came up for there in the fall to let me leave with a couple of samples. I got to tell you, that's a great product you got up there in Perry Sound, Ontario. So welcome to the show. And uh, hey, thanks very, so much, Rob. very pleased to have you. So yeah, that's, uh, boy, I'll tell you, when someone asked you the question, what's new a few months ago, you 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 had a long answer. So do you want to give our listeners a little background to how did Jeff Baird end up as vice president of operations in Perry Sound, Ontario? Running a yes. spread manufacturing plant. That is the cool and it's a beautiful little town. And I have to say it's named after my family for some reason. That whole in fact, I think the address of the plant is Sagan County. So you know,
0: it is. I
1: bloody well own the place. Pay your taxes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting story. It was a bit of a bit of a small world situation. Uh, I was uh, I was currently at a company called Just, which was a San Francisco-based company, and uh, one of my old mentors had uh, had reached out and said, uh, you know, someone's someone's trying to connect with him to see if uh, if there's anyone interested in potentially uh, running a plant in Perry Sound. And uh, I I had just moved from Mississauga to Guelph. So um, to think about moving to Perry Sound was, uh, my my initial reaction was honestly no. Um, But as I started going through the process, I started learning more about uh, crofters. Um, It became really, really attractive at the fact that, you know, it's been a family run company for, I think we're at 35 years at this point. And, you know, they were really looking for someone just to help scale up and create structure. Um, And when I ended up uh, driving down to Perry Sound, um, I I ended up falling in love with it. Uh, I I really did not think that was going to happen. And I remember talking to you about it specifically, about, you know, doing a transition from living in a city to a small town. And really listening to a lot of your feedback and then kind of experiencing uh, a little bit of Perry Sound. Uh, my wife and I decided to make the move, and uh, and now we're at Parry Sound.
1: Yeah, and you know, uh, for those listeners who don't know, now shame on you if you're Canadian and you're a hockey fan, you don't know that Parry Sound is the home of Bobby Orr. It but is. For our global listeners, they might not know that Bobby Orr, I would argue, is the second best hockey player to ever play, second only to Gretzky, notwithstanding Connor McDavid or an Austin Matthews. I mean, he was just a phenom, and he came from that little town. What's the population there
0: of Parry Sound? Was it about 15? Fifteen thousand uh well it kind of flip flops in the wintertime it's about seven thousand and the, the summertime it's about twenty two. So <laughs> well, and, it's and that's in, mostly Yeah, because it's oh, in God. a gorgeous lake
1: country, right? About what two, two and a half hours, what northwest of Toronto would that be?
0: About, right? That's exactly it. Yeah, and it's it's beautiful, beautiful cottage country. So it's just absolutely gorgeous in the uh, in the summer and uh, you know what? I think today is our first big snowfall, so I can't really comment yeah. on how the winter is.
1: Yeah, you've gotten off easy so far. Your first um, full year up there. Yeah, I mean, it is God's country, especially in those spring, summer, fall months. But the winters could be a little rough. and the winds come off those lakes, and woohoo! But yeah, gosh, what a what a great <laughs> little town. It's like the quintessential little Canadian town. It's got a little bit of everything, right? It's got a lot of great outdoor activities, but it seems like it's got a great community spirit. Every time I've had a chance to spend time there, you just notice it, right? Like people look after each other and when people are in need, they, they tend to rally and come together. So it sounds like you've
0: landed in a great spot up there, Jeff. And, and you've nailed it on the head there, Rob. Like, uh, the, the one thing I've really noticed is just that, that small town community feel. Um, so, Crofters has about 86 people that, that work there. Everyone knows everyone. Uh, if anyone needs a hand or a reference or wh- wh- whatever the case is, uh, people are jumping in to help. Um, the one thing that I, I find really, really interesting, uh, the house that we're at is on uh, a street called wabiq And uh, throughout Halloween, people do up their houses to the nines. Uh, I think the house right across the road had... Uh, something like 38 zombies for, for decorations for Halloween. <laughs> and then the exact same thing happened for Christmas. There was uh, another house down the road. I, I think I counted five Christmas trees, one in each window, uh, lights galore. There was Santa Claus standing on the porch. It's, it, it, it's a very, very, um, v- very different feel from Guelph to, to a small town. Oh, um, sure. So, yeah we're, no, it's we're nice really, as nice well right.
1: growth is as a mid-sized Canadian city. It is one of my favorite mid-sized Canadian cities, but yeah, it's a whole different level of community spirit when you get into those smaller, independent little towns that have to look after themselves and are off the beaten track a little bit now it's you know it's a nice little spot for folks that are traveling up and heading west through Canada, so it's what a couple hours south of Sudbury. So you get a pretty nice, steady flow of travelers and traffic there, but it it's off the beaten track, and like you say in the winter. You know those seventy five hundred odd souls really have to look after each other and pull together and run community sports and programs and schools and hospitals and because you're a little ways from the next biggest communities that are you know an hour and a half two hours away.
0: That's it exactly. Yep.
1: Yeah. Well, good on you, Jeff. It's uh, now you. Your wife has a bit of a connection to Perry Sound, right through some of her family line. Is there anybody still surviving that comes from her line? Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Um, her her father. Uh, and uh, her entire father's side lives in Perry Sound. So uh, oh. definitely wasn't unique to uh, to Julia, uh, more so for me. Um, but a- again, there's just another connection where, um, you know, they, they live approximately 40 minutes north, uh, more more kind of in the remote area. Yeah. Um, but even in that section, uh, all the neighbors know each other. Everyone just jumps in to help everyone. So uh just a common trend for Perry Sound.
1: And it'll be so nice for you guys. I know you're raising a daughter, and what, she now three, almost three?
0: Uh she's two and a half. So two she's half, yeah. two and a half going on 14. <laughs>
1: God help you. I had four <laughs> sisters, but no daughters. I don't think I could have handled them. But you know, it'll be so nice for you guys to have that family support and those connections. Uh, so you're not starting right from a blank piece of paper. But yeah, I've been impressed. You've been sharing some stories about how quickly you guys have all assimilated and enjoyed the move up there. So I'm glad that it's been mostly positive surprises and not too many negative ones, which yeah, you can't beat that.
0: Yeah. Very, very little kind of negative interactions whatsoever. Um, it's, I, I've been very, very pleasantly, uh, surprised and impressed. So, um, yeah, we're having a great time here.
1: That's good. So let's talk about, you know, that's a, not only a big personal decision, uh, but it's a big career decision. Now, listen, it turned into a great opportunity. You've already been promoted in the first, what, nine months of your tenure, which is awesome. But yeah. tell us a little bit about the transition. And, I, I, you know, a lot of our listeners, well, I w- what's the number I heard? Over 30% of the Canadian employed population went through transition between the middle of 22 and now. What's that? Uh, 18 months uh the great resignation you could call it whatever you want it was a little later than maybe what was happening south of the border but it was still quite a turbulence in the labor economy and i can't tell you the number of people that i was interacting with that found themselves in transition questioning maybe is this a good time to recalibrate i have time to think is this where i want to be so i know you had a little bit of that happening before covid hit you were making you know some smart moves with your career And uh, you got a lot of things on the go, you know, having your daughter, you know, getting getting that moving forward, uh, being parents and raising a family. But take us a little bit sort of behind the scenes, if you will. How did you attack the opportunity when you knew that it was time for some positive change and you were looking at some options? What was your strategy? What was your approach, Jeff?
0: Um, Well, uh, full transparency, you you really helped uh, guide the way with that to make it uh, a much clearer process, I would say. Um, so one of the things I ended up doing was just make a list and uh, you know try to write everything that's important to you for your next career step. Uh, jot it down, whatever comes to mind, and then eventually try to really, truly prioritize it. And when you really have a list and you're looking at it, uh it, it really does guide you and 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 you start realizing things that actually are important versus things that you think are important and end up being lower on the scale.
1: Yeah. Um, things that might have been important a year before or might be important to your cohort, other members of your family. Like I'm glad you said that because I was just visiting with someone over dinner earlier today and she's in that same space that you were in a few years ago, considering different options. And she asked me, what's sort of the approach that you find bears fruit? And I was thinking about you and a couple other people who took that disciplined approach. And one thing I remember you mentioned to me is not only did it make your thinking clearer, but I remember you saying that it allowed you to push away the things that really weren't something you should have taken seriously. You know, a lot of things pop up on LinkedIn. You're made aware of when you got your radar on, you know, Things come across your line of sight, so to speak. And you, it can be a distraction if you're chasing those butterflies all over the place. But you seem to really quickly have a very, I don't know, like your compass was really well calibrated. You you, you clearly knew what it was you wanted and why you wanted it. And then I think more than anybody I could think of, well, you and another guy named Tom that I helped out a little bit last year from the U.S. Both said the same thing, which is it's almost like you you threw the power on a magnet and you started to attract the things that you should have attracted that matched your list. But then you rejected the things pretty quickly that really weren't a good fit. They might've been a good fit you a few years ago or for somebody else, but not for you. Is that, am I describing what I thought I heard from you?
0: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. And um, you know, the the interesting thing is once you have this list, trust the list. Don't um, you know, don't get in that fear-based mentality that you're not going to find something if something comes up. Be comfortable. You know, if an opportunity comes through and it doesn't quite match what your list is, it's okay to say no and wait for the next opportunity. Um, yeah, and listen, and, I know
1: that everybody's situation is a little different. Like, you happen to be looking for your growth opportunity when the economy was moving pretty good, and maybe now it's slowing down a little bit. So, I know you and I talked about this. There's always that uh, ideal state. Now, listen, if you got to a point where you were six months between gigs and things were starting to get a little tight financially, maybe a few things on your list have to be compromised. But you set it up for yourself pretty well. Like I I think if you call it a game, you played the game well. Uh, And I really admired that because you did have a couple other things that came at you that I remember you said to me, your first impression was, You were quite curious about them, but once you took a disciplined approach, it was almost, I wouldn't say laughable, but it was almost quite obvious that they weren't for you, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. And, um, you know, one of my previous roles, uh, one of the factors that I didn't realize was as important was uh, travel distance. Um, So before I ended up taking on the role with crafters, um, you know, there were times where I was driving in one direction on the 401 for uh anywhere from an hour to two hours and 15 minutes, oh, cool. and you know, that just kind of wears on you over time. Um, so that naturally became one of my top priorities was you know, ideally, I want to find a job that's less than a 30 minute drive if that exists. Um, yeah. now that in order to achieve that, that forced a move with the family, but. You know, we had a lot of discussions and uh, it, it ended up being the right move at this point. I think I've got a 12-minute drive and it's absolutely phenomenal. I, yeah. I just absolutely love it.
1: Yeah, and you're driving through fresh country air and there's not yep jam traffic on the 401. You're probably not even on a highway for goodness sake. So, yeah, and, you know, you'll never get that precious time back, especially with your daughter being at the age she's at. You know, if you're going to give up an hour and a half each way, that's three hours a day. Five days a week. That's 15 hours a week. Good Lord. That's 60 hours a month, 720 hours a year if I quickly do the math. (laughs) Holy cow. You know, we talk about how quickly time flies, especially raising kids, right? Next thing you know, you turn around and she's not two and a half. She's 14. Well, this is that time when, you know, the daddy-daughter bond is so important. And I'm sorry people talk about quality time. Well, there's quality time. There's also just time. I mean, just doing little things like a puzzle or... You know, watching a dance recital, or you know, doing a little day trip with her. Like, I know you really value that stuff, and in that environment, you get to do all of that, and then take twelve minutes to get to work. That's pretty friggin' awesome.
0: Yeah, and and it really, you know, I'm I'm extremely empathetic to anyone that that has even longer transit times. I know I know that exists out there. Um, the one thing I'm very very grateful for is is you know the shorter time. It really does allow you to be more present in your family life and uh that that's something that i'm really trying to focus on yeah well listen it gives
1: you the mental energy and capacity to be able to bring that uh, energy home right when you're not sitting in traffic for an hour and a half that's on the best of days you know you get on that 401 it's the worst traffic now in north america i think Toronto (laughs) and la are battling for that you know you know (laughs) An enviable title of worst traffic in North America. It's terrible. The GTA is terrible. Oh, it's atrocious. Um, you know, and it's the stress too. And then you're, you know, I don't know about you, but you're all fired up. It's like unless you found a good podcast or a good radio show or some talk radio or a Leafs game, whew, that is just painful three hours of your day. So you got not, you know, even if you make it home in a reasonable time, is there anything left in the tank for your wife and your daughter and yourself? Right? It's, it's not much there when you get home.
0: And and. And, and that was a lot of my wife and I's discussions is, you know, if, if you got a two hour drive uh, one way and you you finally get home, you just don't have a whole lot in the tank to to, to be engaged in family life. You know, you're you're yeah. really thinking about how, you know, how do you wind down? How do you close out the day? And then the next day starts again. Yeah. You're so, living to
1: work instead of working to
0: live. Right. That's it. That's it. Yeah.
1: Well, good on you. I mean, you know, listen, it wasn't easy for you. um, So tell me a little bit about with the opportunities that started to get on your radar, um, how did you bring this to a close? What was the process you went through with Crofters? And, you know, it turned out great, but you know, you had to work at it and it was a dance as it always is. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What did you experience during that dance? What were the highlights and maybe the low lights and how did you end up where you are?
0: Um, so uh, Crofters is, is owned by a private equity firm called uh, Frontenac currently, and that's re- um, recent, right? Uh, since uh, I believe 20, uh, 2020, so okay. 2019 2020 is when uh, Frontenac ended up purchasing Crofters. So the interview process itself was kind of a mix between uh, having a couple interviews with uh, with Frontenac themselves, sure. Um, but with Crofters being a family-run company, um, there uh, there's two brothers named Dan and Seedy. Uh, they were kind of more so the the primary interviewers because uh, they're they're very smart and they realistically were looking for uh, you know the right fit from a culture perspective, um, and and that was really one of the biggest selling features for me. Uh, I learned a lot about Crofters. I understand. Uh, you know, how their plant functions, uh, kind of where they are from a culture perspective uh, as a site. Um, but knowing that realistically, I'm going to be working with the two brothers the most, that was one of the most important factors for me as well. Um, and throughout, you know, uh, we we probably had, I don't know, four or five separate interviews, conversations, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, the the three of us felt very comfortable moving forward that um, I just I just had this innate feeling that we were going to gel really well. And that's super, super important for business.
1: You know, a lot of people have said to me, Jeff, as they've gone through this transition and you know the 30, 40 percent of people who have over the last couple of years have said probably the one thing that has gotten on a lot of folks radar is <laughs> if you're going to survived through the 18 to 24 months that was COVID and all that transactional work we had to do in our laptops, it created a huge appetite for culture, right? Everybody seemed to have that. It wasn't on the radar before. It was certainly on the radar post-COVID. And of course, the question comes up, how do you do due diligence for that? I mean, it's pretty easy to do the financial due diligence. Uh, it's pretty easy to ask the right questions in terms of, say, business strategy, pipeline, all that stuff that you can either do yourself or get some help from your network, especially the recruiters. But how do you uncover the culture piece? And, and how did you get to the bottom of that to the point where you felt like from your perspective, and I suppose from theirs, you both felt like the fit was good, that word fit. So how did you uncover that? You know, beyond the obvious of trying to get to know the two uh, senior managers there, the two brothers, was there anything else that you did to, Try to get some visibility to that
0: yeah I, I I think a lot of my approach was just having very direct transparent communication. Um, so one of my uh, most recent mentors throughout uh, throughout this experience is uh, Chris Wilkins, and he's the executive chairman of the board and he was a phenomenal resource um, you know he never never sugarcoated everything. he always just kind of directly said. Uh, you know, what, what his impressions were. Um, he outlined specific challenges, uh, things that he felt would work really well and vice versa from my side. Um, I was very, very honest throughout the interview process as well. Um, you know, so I, I, would very quickly outline uh, you know, what are, what are my values? How, how do I work? What best um, um, you know, what, what kind of culture am I looking for? And, you know, that, that's one step of just having the conversations. But I think the, the best approach I kind of discovered is, uh, you know, when you had the on-site interview, it's one thing to hear from, uh, you know, the, the senior leaders of what culture is, but to see it for yourself is another thing. Um, so so a great story when I was doing the plant tour of Crofters. Um, you know, I'm always looking for employees, you know, are they acknowledging people? Are they, are they saying hello? You know, are, are you doing your standard kind of, you know, respectful behaviors, but an interesting thing that happened was, uh, there was a skid of jars that actually, uh, you know, a material handler was moving the jars on a forklift, accidentally tipped them. And there was just a, a mountain of jars that came crashing down and, uh, a, a very, very clear depiction of what the culture was at Crofters. Whoever was free came running over. Uh, there was no blame pushed on the material handler. Everyone worked together on cleaning up this ginormous mess. And even the two brothers came running over, uh, not afraid to get their hands dirty, even being you know owners of the company. And that was one of those situations. And I still still talk to Dan Seabee about it. That was just a huge selling feature. Um, you know, actions speak louder than words, in my opinion. And that was a crystal clear action that really spelled out the culture of crafters.
1: Well, listen, Um, when my clients are hiring Jeff, especially for positions in leadership management roles like that, one of the things that we'll often talk about is how can they get to know the real candidates, like the real Jeff. And you almost hope that you can at least simulate an environment where you get to show them who you are, what your values are all about. I know they ask the behavioral interview questions. They always do, but, Many sure. of my clients have gone to simulation exercises or thrown a curveball into the process to really get to know the candidates or put them in a uncomfortable environment, like like take them somewhere. Like one of my crazy clients took a non-golfer golfing just to see how they would react. Maybe it might not mm-hmm. be my first choice, but he said, you know, <laughs> showed me a lot of could this candidate, could she handle being out of her comfort zone and how did she carry herself in a challenging environment? Now that might not have been the nicest thing to do, but it's the reason she got the job offer. Right. She just for was sure, a an pro and she played her cards. Well, was very professional. Didn't try to pretend that she, and she was like God's gift to golf and, but also went along with it. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it was not only just a lucky break for you to witness that, but you had your eyes in years old because a lot of people wanted to just missed that. Right. Might have just, not thought to say, Hey, what does that tell me about how it really is around here? Cause everybody's going to, you know, uh, put on their Sunday best, both the candidates as well as the hiring company. Right. So these little moments in interviews are quite, quite important. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story. What else for you put the whole opportunity over the top and compelled you to sign on the bottom line? Was there anything else, Jeff, that stood out to you?
0: Um, In all honesty, I think it was really just a lot of conversations with my wife and just making sure it was the right decision for the family. Um, So I'm very ambitious with my career. Uh, uh, You know, my wife and I talk about that a lot. I talk to, um, you know, a lot of my mentors about, you know, how do I learn more and, you know, what does the next step look like type of situation. But from a fairness perspective, I want to make sure that my wife, Julia, has the exact same opportunity um, she's recently changed from, uh, careers from a massage therapist into project management. And, you know, my number one concern is if we move to Perry sound, I want to make sure that Julia still has opportunity for a career. And you know what, all the stars aligned and, um, you know, Ju- Julia's capable of working remotely as a project manager. And it's really just checked all the boxes from that side. So once we finalize that, um, realistically uh, that that was the done deal at that point.
1: Well, cause you knew, and I remember you telling me that of course, what you were looking for was, and you, you know, you, you've, you you've said it just now, you're, you're an ambitious person and you should be, you're in the sort of those halcyon days of your career where you're not getting started, but you're not towards the end. You're right at the peak of all the opportunity that's ahead of you, especially in that space. So Yeah, of course, it's a given that you were looking for the challenge and hoping to not trade that off in order to get the family, community, great lifestyle. You also had to keep your own corporate challenge in mind as well as your wife. So, man, to hit all three, uh, plus all the other things on your list. I mean, good on you, as the Aussies say. But let's talk a little bit about what you saw as the career and um, career challenge that came with the role. And with the potential runway that you've already been able to capitalize into a promotion less than a year in. So what did you see on that side of the ledger? And uh, how does that match up to what has manifested so far at Crofters?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, being being eyes wide open, uh, you know, taking a look at Crofters, knowing that it's a a family-owned company from day one for about 35 years, um, most family-run companies... Um, you know, they, they they tend to do it one way and are, are somewhat resistant to change. Uh, I myself, I love change. Um, so I love seeing opportunity and going, okay, how can we do this differently? And uh, I, I would say that would probably be the, uh, that, that was the biggest challenge at the start, is just getting leadership to understand that, there's definitely different ways to do it and you can work smarter, not harder and actually get better results as well as drive pro- positive culture in doing so. Um, so naturally like anything, uh, I need to build credibility to, you know, you know, not only build relationships, but, uh, business credibility that I'm knowledgeable in the profession that I'm doing. Uh, and that, that typically, you know, takes a little bit of time. Um, and uh, you know there was kind of a, a key point where, um, realistically, the the father decided to go into retirement. And uh, what's happened is that realistically uh, eliminated a couple of barriers from a change management perspective. And uh, for I, I guess since August until now, um, it's been an interesting leadership dynamic where it's been myself, uh, the two brothers as well as our VP of finance that have been running the business. Um, we've just recently hired uh, a CEO as of uh, last week. Okay. So that's a new leadership structure that's been put in place. But until then, we've we've really kind of managed the business almost from a, a, a tribe kind of perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, the four of us have gelled extremely well. Um, you know, it took some time to build that trust but once that trust was there, you know, we, we really allow each other to own the lane, but involve everyone to get feedback as well. And the amount of change that we've made at Crofters has honestly, it's been has uh, been pretty remarkable.
1: Have you got any particular anecdotes to share examples to share about little breakthrough moments or you know, sort of pivot points that you've seen in the first six months as the four of you started to work together? Any little examples come to mind?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, So for me being an operations guy, one of the the biggest things that I want to do is how how do we drive more volume with the same, you know, amount of resources? Um, So within within Crofters, uh, there's a filling line, there's a packaging line. And uh, typically, the, you know, crafters always run at a certain speed. Um, and what I've, uh, what I've really challenged is how do we start breaking down barriers and start running to design speeds versus kind of tribal knowledge type speeds. Uh, and a perfect example I put together, uh, I, I'm going to call it Project Flash. And what it was, was we're running our large uh, 1038 ML jar and typically, crafters would run it somewhere between 60 to 70 jars per minute. Uh, and, and you know, working with maintenance and engineering, we determined that from a design speed, it could actually run at 180. But the perception of the plant was that was impossible. There's going to be jars breaking everywhere. It's going to be a huge headache. Um, so anyhow, uh, you know, we managed to get all departments on board. Uh, we had... Everyone at all the different corners just to make sure that if there was glass breakage, we'd be able to stop the line as quick as possible. And lo and behold, what happened was we managed to ramp up all the way up to 180 jars per minute. And there wasn't one jar that broke. And it, it not only did we achieve what the result was, but the really cool thing that happened was there was a huge mind shift change of almost the site itself because suddenly people realize, oh, there are different ways on how to do it, and it can actually run faster. Well, And, um,
1: and it goes, I love that story, and I love that you chose that one, because I could just imagine, listen, a lot of our listeners would remember times if they're not going through it right now as part of this turbulence we just talked about. Then everybody has a memory of being the new sheriff on, in town, you know, where you come in in a leadership role. And then whether it's in a completely uh different environment, like you going from the city to the country, you going from perhaps you could argue slightly more sophisticated environments, larger environments to more of a family environment. Great product and tremendous 35-year run of success, but still <laughs> not maybe as complex as some of the places, Jeff, you've been able to uh you know learn and learn your craft, right? So but what I really like about that example that you raised was it wasn't like theoretical, you know, Jeff's talking about an idea. <laughs> no, you're able to convince them to come with you and give get, get the idea to a point where they could see the impact it could have as visual and as visible as look at the, look at the throughput we could get without compromising the quality of our approach. That must have like, I, I would bet that just them coming through that with you must have change the sort of the, uh, the, the angle of the line of change, if you know what I mean, probably afforded you guys the opportunity to be more brave as an operations team and as a leadership team to say, hey, look at that. You know, maybe now there's this energy in the plant to continue to look for those opportunities to work smarter. Has that been your experience? Is it really like, a, I don't know, there's that sports expression, especially in Canada, the TSN turning point. Almost <laughs> you tell that story and think about, you know, here's the TSN turning point. Um, has it been? Has that been the case, Jeff? Is you, have you seen a momentum coming out of that?
0: Absolutely. There's been huge business momentum that's uh, uh, that's been created from this, and it's actually created a flurry of ideas with, um, you know, production, quality, maintenance. The the entire site is coming up with all these new ideas, uh, and and it really just took that 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 one success measure to change the mindset. Um, so now what, what we're really working on is we're challenging all those tribal thoughts that are, you know, it's, it's just, this is how we've always done it to now we're going towards, well, this is how he's always done it, but is there a better way we can do it? And what other processes are we currently doing that potentially is a waste? And, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example, um, you know, for Crofters, there's, Three main departments, there's a batching, filling, and packaging department. Uh, Packaging has always been the bottleneck. Um, Throughout the last two months, we managed to move the bottleneck over to batching, which is, uh, again, it's a huge feat. It's just getting everyone to work together with kind of a common alignment and goal. And now there's, instead of turning it into a negative competition, it's actually driving a really friendly competition because everyone's understanding what a bottleneck means. And now the batching department who owns it, they're coming up with all these incredible ideas on how to potentially get a 40-minute batch down to a 17-minute batch. I, and what you know, that'll this, do is I, it'll just shift it over to packaging again. Oh, I'm so excited to hear you say that,
1: Jeff, because I remember when I did go up and do the first little mini site visit uh, with you and you were able to kind of give me a quick look around. Um, you know, I remember us talking about this and you said, look... If this goes really well, I'm probably going to see myself go through. Remember you saying something like three phases. The first phase being trying to quickly understand, especially in a family-run company that has had uh a private equity play. That's a that's a, a transition that you and I both know comes with an expectation by the new owners, the private equity owners, that we all understand what is the play. That their play is. They buy a very healthy asset and make it even healthier, right? They're not looking for dumpster fires most of the time. They're looking for something they could take from good to great, right? They see it's sitting; it's a little, it's a little nugget of gold that could be bigger and shinier, to to sort of use that phrase. So I remember you saying something to the effect that, look, if if I'm going to fulfill my mandate here, if I'm going to do what I've been hired to do, I've somehow got to help them. Uh, realize the potential of this asset that they purchased, but in a way that you know I don't want to shoot myself in the foot and end up having it rebound or you know, back back backwash against me. So I remember writing down something to the effect of at first, you're gonna have to lead by example, show them a few little things, give them some hints and ideas that as you pull the ox cart in a slightly different way, they can see where that could take them, and then at some point. You're shoulder to shoulder with, let's say, the brothers and your CFO partner, and you guys are starting to make some things happen more shoulder to shoulder. And then at some point, it's a huge step forward when now the team is is pulling, and you, the four of you are guiding. You know, you're not you're not doing all the grunting and groaning. You're you're looking at, and it's how much how rewarding it must have been in the last couple months to have the departments coming to each of you, initiating ideas on how they could do things better. I mean, that's ultimately where you want to be as a leader, right? Is the conductor of the orchestra and managing the energy and the initiative, not having to, you know, uh whip the pony or or kick the horse in the arse. Like, it's like, no, no, I'm going to give you the environment. You take the ownership on it and come and tell us how this can work better or smarter, and we'll try to find a way to fund it.
0: So, boy, for you to be there after, what, eight, nine months, man, that must feel great. Yeah, I think uh, I think I started in June, so uh, I don't know where we're at now, but we're at a phase where it is just fun to go to work. Uh, and and again, I, I just uh, I just think I'm extremely lucky to have this opportunity. First of all, uh, but like I said, it's that culture that was developed at Crofters, and we have uh, you know we have really enhanced it. We've uh, we've come up with spelling out of exactly what the culture, the Crofters culture is. And I, I think that's really paved the way for understanding, um, you know, what it is to be an employee working at Crofters. Uh, keep in mind with all the positive, there's there's always, you know, a stream of negatives. So you always got your, you know, your 10% of employees that just, just don't like change or, um, you know, don't like a little bit more structure. But, Really, we're trying to cater to the ninety percent that is really on kind of the positive side of the fence and really driving this thing forward. Yeah, but I, um, I really
1: liked when I went to visit you the first time because I remember in my notes I drew a little adoption curve as you were talking. You know, <laughs> because I, as you were describing your first impressions, right, and the folks around you, you felt like there were as you, there isn't any adoption curve. Some folks who immediately were excited about the company's decision to invest in your. Talent and to bring that level of expertise into this growth opportunity that was crofters. There were a few people who saw that that was a smart move, right? Call them the early adopters, the innovators. Well, it was probably, I don't know, uh, somewhere around 10%, I'm sure was your first impression. (laughs) There's a few people who really get it. Yeah. And then I remember you telling me now listen, if I go too fast, it's going to come back, snap back, and hit me in the face if I try to push through too much change leadership at once you know you give the what's that i remember when my kids were small probably about the same age as your daughter i was trying to get to a men's hockey game and one of the kids was in the high chair and i'm trying to shove the applesauces and it's all over his <laughs> <Andrew's> <laughs> chin and all over his chest and none of it's being swallowed and my wife taps through the shoulder and says you know it's not how fast you shove it in right <laughs> i said
0: yeah yeah for, for sure, sure.
1: busted right but it's the same thing in a sense like you come up there and you're trying to ram through all these ideas. Yeah, you're literally giving the patient indigestion or the customer indigestion. So I like that when you were describing it to me, you were very cognizant of moving through these stages of adoption. And I think leaders have to look at that, not just from its classic use in a marketing sense, but in a change leadership sense, you really can leverage. I know Simon Sinek talks about this, but who are those innovators and early early adopters who can then be part of your circle of influence, right, and use them to start to lean on the 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 early you know the early majority those folks who are kind of skeptical but a little bit curious and that sounds like you got those people to come with you maybe a little more quickly than you thought which may or may not include the brothers and some of the other leaders but it almost feels like you hit that magic tipping point that cynic talks about when now you've got momentum through that group and i'm sure there are some days you think to yourself well listen the train is leaving the station and this is the way it's going to be going forward. There's a lot of people now with a lot of enthusiasm. this thing's starting to move, and people are going to have to decide, are you want to be on this train or
0: do you want to get it off? Yeah, that's, it's 100 uh, percent it, accurate of exactly how you, how you outlined it there, Rob. Uh, and you know, change management is difficult. Um, seeing problems, super easy. Um, and, and one of the strategies I I really employ that I find really effective, uh, whenever I join a company, I'll go around, number one, go around to every single employee in the company and introduce yourself and, you know, understand, you know, learn people's names. That's super important. But the second thing I always try to do is, uh, you know, I'll ask people that, you know, if I had a magic wand and I could fix three issues, I don't care what they are, what are those three issues? And if you do that with the entire company, it's amazing. You get the top three trends that are the problems. And so I kind of use that as a strategy where I'm going to focus on a, you know, I got to understand from an operations, quality, maintenance, whatever the case is, what, what are the main business problems? But I also want to focus on these top three, because if I can fix these top three, and this is the majority of the population. I'm already trying to make sure that people understand that I'm going to listen to their feedback and I'm going to help drive to, 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 to fix solutions. 100%. And once you start getting one or two, uh, you know, feedback goes around really quick. And now people are a lot more open to getting on board with change because they've already kind of self-driven the change. If that makes sense.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. You know, it's funny. I was just in a meeting today with a client and one of the leaders there brought up the story that you hear about uh, Steve Jobs when he was brought back to Apple and they were struggling and they wanted him to come back and <laughs> save them. And the story goes, as least as she told it today, which I thought re- reminded me of what I thought I read somewhere, that he did exactly that. He brought his top engineers into a room and said to them, OK, I want you to make a list of the things that you believe would really matter the most to turning this company around. And he just left them alone for a while. And they really had a raucous debate, and they were proud to bring them back in and say, okay, we got the top 10 things. And he listened to this, They explained them all, and then he walked over to the board, took an eraser out, and erased the top, the first, the bottom eight. And said, yeah, I took a picture of it before I erased it, so I know what else is there. But we're only going to do two things, and we're going to do them extremely well. You know, so, <laughs> A... What you, you know, what, what reminds me about your story is a, he listened, you know, he didn't come in saying, Oh, I'm, you know, the prodigal son, I'm back here. I I know exactly what needs to be done. Here's what we're going to do. You know, he let them, uh, because they're there every day and had been there in the trenches for the time he was away, bring their insight immediately to the surface. And gee, that sounds so simple, but I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised, Jeff, how many leaders just don't do that. Yeah. When all else fails, ask the damn customer. Well, in this case, ask the employee. And I'm sure your walkabout with the dozens of employees you spoke to, you probably found that when you asked that question, it was pretty self-evident that there were a few things <laughs> that kept coming up, right?
0: Uh, absolutely.
1: It wasn't like um, it was all over the freaking map.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, as long as you're open to listening to it, you don't get defensive or you don't show frustration, You know, that will become a positive feedback loop where now you've got a direct pulse, not just from direct reports that are reporting into you, but from the entire site on, you know, how people feel things are going. Um, You know, another strategy that I I really highly recommend, um, and I've used this at a couple companies, uh, there's, uh, you know, software called uh, Turning Point Technologies, and they're voting tools. So, you know, I'll always schedule a monthly town hall and make sure that, you know, you're transparently sharing as much as you possibly can to the entire site. But um, I'll ask questions where everyone has uh, an actual remote tool and now they have an opportunity to vote based on uh, whatever questions coming up. So, you know, a prime example, um, you know, how do you enjoy working at Crafter's Food? And, you know, you can put multiple choice questions up there and everyone has an opportunity to vote. And the very cool thing that I think scares a lot of leaders is you can't hide the data. It's going to show exactly the results in front of everyone live at that point. And then, you know, I I find as a good leader, whatever it is, good, bad or ugly, that's what the results are. And your job is to listen to the feedback and figure out how to drive it on the positive side. And, you know, there's times where the results are extremely positive and that makes life really easy. And then there's other times where it can be extremely negative and you, gotta, you know, you gotta figure out how to, how to fix those problems.
1: Well, I could see Jeff that you really learned some important, uh, critical messages in your journey, uh, getting to Crofters and now being able to leverage that, um, wisdom that you've gathered along the way in your journey to crofters who were the leaders that influenced you most and what did you you know sort of steal from them as things that you took with you to crofters there's some people that come to mind
0: oh absolutely um you know i think on the one hand uh some of the best lessons you learn are what not to do so I won't, I won't call all those out, but, you know, you'll learn <laughs> yeah, that throughout your experience. You can learn, throughout, from, throughout well, you can
1: learn it as much from a bad coach as again from a good
0: coach, son. So listen to both of them. <laughs> so, yeah, I would, I would highly recommend that. Obviously, if, uh, if you're seeing something not working, try, try the opposite. And chances are that's, uh, that's a better approach. Um, but, I, when I'm thinking of one of, uh, one of my primary influencers in my career, um, Carl Tilburg, uh, I worked with him for four years at Trophy Foods. Um, you know, up until that point, I had been a plant manager at West Rock, which was a corrugate company. Um, and I didn't have too much direction from a, a leadership side over there. It was kind of, kind of a sink or swim kind of mentality, um, when I joined a trophy uh, Carl Tilberg joined as the VP of operations probably two months after I joined and him and I have an amazing relationship even to date but he was the one influence that really taught me operations um, you know usually operations people are natural fixers so dealing with chaos and driving solutions that that comes pretty natural. Um, But what Carl did was he really taught me how to evolve in operations uh, into a daily management system, which is pretty much an autonomous uh, system, as long as you have the discipline to follow through on uh, what the process controls are. And it it really had a massive unlock for me. Um, And and I've really used that strategy uh, moving forward in every other role that I've been in. Um, so, absolute hats off to Carl, um, and not only that, he, geez, I hope he's not listening because uh, you know I never, <laughs> well, never like is, I twenty bucks or. in the mail, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other, the other thing I really appreciated was he was just a normal guy. Uh, you know, he's got the VP of Operations title. You naturally, you know, have a ton of respect for 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 the role in the title. But the more powerful part was. He was just Carl and, you know, I could, I could, you know, shoot, shoot the shit with him about anything. And he was more than open to talk about it. Yeah. Um, So, so very genuine. And that, that, that was a huge influence on me.
1: Where did the, I would call your interpersonal gift come from Jeff, because I understand you and Carl got a chance in that case to him, him to mentor you in your chosen craft. I mean, I had that with a guy named Sheldon where he basically taught me and a bunch of other people the fundamentals on being commercial leaders, sales and marketing people. And he really had a lot to share with us. Um, Where did your interpersonal skills come from? Because I would categorize you as someone with way above average interpersonal skills. Is that just something you were born with or is that something that evolved or both? Uh,
0: I would say it evolved. Um, It's really interesting. I, I think it really started coming out when I was in university Uh, Prior to that, I was an extremely, extremely introverted individual, Uh, very low confidence, um, you know, naturally a people watcher. So always kind of observing and, you know, seeing people's traits and just, I guess, focusing on a little bit of emotional intelligence. But I I really think it was university when I really reflect on it, where I really started coming out of my shell and just just being comfortable, you know sometimes having the spotlight in a crowd and, um, you know, uh, sharing an opinion that differs from someone else. And, uh, you know, I, 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 can think of while I was going through university, I had a summer job at, uh, I think as a facility, you know, facility custodian slash, uh, I, I looked after a, a banquet hall and one of my managers there, same as Paul Lambert, um, I really learned from him on how to really turn on the extroverted approach, and by that I mean, um, you know, be comfortable making people feel welcome and friendly and 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 really natural. I think was was the key. Um, and from there, I, I think I just constantly just kind of focused on it. Where now, I I think it comes fairly natural to me. Where I don't I don't really have to focus on it too much. Um, no, but it, it, it definitely was, uh, was an evolution.
1: Yeah, and it's something that I've noticed with some of our other guests too, right? It's a surprising number of extremely successful leaders who have a natural tendency towards introversion as opposed to extroversion. I remember uh, Jim Collins writing a fair amount about this in Good to Great that, you know, we think of the Lee Iacoccas and the table-banging type, you know, strong voices type Bay leaders as the model that we should all follow. And, you know, when you really look at, top performance, which they do almost painfully, painstakingly in that book that Collins wrote, and then even some of the subsequent things that he's written. When you look at the correlation between extraordinary long-term results and the kinds of leaders that get those results, there's a surprising number of introverts who achieve those uh, kind of sustainable separating results from the pack. And he attributed it to the power of empathy and listening. I mean, just look at your own example. You go around the plant. How many extroverts would have the confidence to go around the plant? Ask that question of dozens of people and just shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that's the advantage you bring to it. And I I mean, just look at our our guest list. I I think there's more than 50% of our guests to this point that are more on the introverted side. And I think that just correlates with what Collins and others have found is that when you really harness the power of listening and empathy, man, I got to tell you, it's probably arguably the most important leadership capability, especially in this economy, right, where you can't run businesses perhaps the way you could coming out of the the, the post-war boom where, you know, it had a command and control was the way to dr- drive a lot of, say, uh, uh, production-type facilities and and shop floors and unionized environments in particular. there had to be a boss who knew what the hell was supposed to be done and just sort of <laughs> tell everybody what to do, right? That's what it was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's what the leadership management books used to write about is that con- command and control model. Well, the economy, especially in the 1980s with the advent of the personal computer, went from being dominated by uh, what my dad and probably your dad and our grandparents went through was you know, that sort of shop environment and the old school methodology and it pivoted and you see it now crofters. to you know you got to get the most out of the talent that's around you in order to compete with the bigger shops that are competing with you for shelf presence you know at costco or walmart or the other uh, retailers and it's if you don't have everybody pulling hard on the ore with you know and using their brain to do things better and faster every day you just can't compete because other companies don't wait for the one person in the room to make all the decisions they get to what you described, right? Where they listen to the 30 some people that are there and get their input. So that what's that expression? Nobody's as smart as all of us has to be the Mm new mindset. And you, you epitomize that in even just the first six or seven months in this opportunity at Crofters. So I'm not surprised when you break it down for us that you've had the kind of quick, pick up on the vision that you had that you shared with me the first few weeks that you were on the job that you're going to have to somehow get through those three stages to the point where your biggest challenge amongst the four of you as executive leaders was picking which initiative and which idea needed was worthy of the you know the investment because you can't do it all at the same time and you're already there i mean less than three quarters later which is really cool
0: yeah. And, and, you know, I, it, it's funny, I kind of joke cause I, I tell people, I go, you know, I'm, I, I'm just Jeff kind of similar to, to, to Carl. Um, and the way to look at me is I'm just a facilitator of information. Um, tell, tell me the problems. Uh, I'll follow servant leadership as, as kind of my, my, my style. And as long as it fits kind of the alignment of where we're trying to go and what I'm trying to strategize on an operation side, um, let let's hear it and let's let's try it the worst thing you can do is try and it doesn't work and you go back to you know what what the normal process was um, but it has had absolutely fascinating results at crofters um, because everything that's tried a, a lot of th- processes have been tribal knowledge so there hasn't been too much fact-based decision making and that's uh, that that's kind of a new strategy that I'm employing as well is let's get to David data driven decisions versus just, I think I feel. And um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really fun time right now.
1: Jeff, what else would you share with, let's say, if I came across uh, a young operations person who she or he had a, you know, similar ambitious streak to what you had when you ventured into this vertical in plant and operations, if someone came to you who's let's say 10 years behind you on the trail what would you do for them, you know, sort of akin to what Carl did for you? Like, what do you think now that you're at that sort of apex of your learnings and you're starting to really leverage all that in the marketplace? But what would you share with somebody who's maybe five or 10 years behind in the journey as a, as a sort of gift you would give them to carry with them on their own journey? What, is, what are one or two things that you think are comp- very pertinent in this economy, in this environment?
0: Yeah, I, I would think kind of two things. Um, number one, uh, obviously, if you're, if you're looking to evolve in your career, you naturally have to have some sort of foundational knowledge that turns into subject matter expert knowledge. Um, I find what a lot of people do is, uh, you know, if I'm a, uh, a production supervisor, for example, on the floor, I'm only going to learn the production supervisor side and, you know, what? quality owns quality and whatever's happening and warehouse is happening. And, and you know, people stay a little tunnel visioned in what their role is. Um, one of the things I kind of inadvertently did without thinking too much um, when I started off my career and, and even now, I'm constantly trying to learn every other role that's happening there. Uh, and, and maybe not doing the role, but understanding the concepts as to why people are doing things. So absolutely don't be afraid to say, why did you make that decision? Or, you know, what, why does this process exist? Um, Because all it's going to do is it's just going to broaden your experience and broaden your knowledge. Um, I've never, yeah, I've never, I've never managed quality before, but I'm responsible for quality at the site. And had I not paid attention to and, and been actively involved in, you know, corrective action investigations, root causes, developing SOPs, understanding change controls, um, I, I would be very inequipped for, for for the role that I'm in now.
1: Well, and you wouldn't uh, have got the job, right? Because I'm sure no. the private equity company and the current leadership team drilled down pretty heavy on that stuff. And you obviously knew that what the heck you were talking about, because to your point, you made sure that your appetite for learning wasn't just centered in your narrow swim lane. You, you were smart enough to look around.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and that kind of started my first career job at, uh, at a company called CPL, uh, and it happened a little naturally. Uh, I started off as a, uh, in a validation role, but I just had a ton of time, and I couldn't get more work to fill that time. So I naturally started branching out and just helping people out with other roles, obviously getting manager approval for it, um, but it, it really did help understand different departments and then naturally I ended up uh, you know, being natural backups formalized in different roles throughout the company so that that it really did help build that foundational understanding of how a business runs.
1: You said there were two ideas. What's the other one that you think would be particularly powerful for someone who is, let's say your protege? Uh,
0: I would say something that you kind of commented on throughout our conversation is the empathy piece. Um, so, I found the more you learn about how to be empathetic, the more you can relate with people. And, you know, that's not to say when someone's going through a hard time, you give them, uh, you know, uh, a mile until, you know, they, they get back to a performance state. But it's more so having that ability to build relationships and relate. Um, and I, I think a critical path in, in kind of my life uh, I was in a relationship where it, it was a very challenging relationship based on uh, a, a lot of different factors coming into play, and both of us decided to go to counseling. And we ended up going to counseling for, for quite a while, and I would say at the time I viewed it as an extreme weakness. Um, you know, my, my dad's an ex-RCMP cop. He's, a, you know, one of those man's man kind of guys. And uh, you know my my family my upbringing—we've never once talked counseling before. Uh, so at the time, I, I really was kind of viewing this as a weakness, but also having that knowledge that I want to fix stuff. Well, if I don't have the knowledge or the maturity to fix it, well, I better bring in an external resource that's going to help me out. Yeah. Um, so going through that counseling phase, uh, as difficult as it was, I absolutely just. Did not enjoy it for that first year. Um, it, it really did open my eyes and give me a lot more communication skills on how to deal with difficult conversations and be comfortable with it. Um, well, and that's
1: the thing, right? As you go up a subject matter area, it doesn't matter whether it's plant and operations and quality like your area or it's sales or marketing or finance, HR, it doesn't matter. At some point, if you want to move beyond... And move into more general management, higher level of, say, people and strategic and cultural responsibilities, you have to be able to do those sorts of things you're just talking about, right? Engage people, meet them with not just head but heart. And I think empathy is a royal road to that because, mm-hmm. I, and I've seen you do this, like I think you ask some of the smartest questions I've ever heard and you aren't afraid to go to second level questions and get people to explain why did you say that? And you really listen, like you're not just going through the motions. I've worked for managers that went to some darn course, right? And you can't they don't really care what you say. They just ask because someone told them they should. But I see you paying attention, I see you taking notes. You know, I could see that from your body language, and I'm sure it's the people on the other end of the conversations on a day-to-day basis that I'll bet you if I caught folks as they walked away from either formal or informal conversations with you where you really are engaging with them. And I asked them, so what's your impression of Jeff? I would bet that I would hear, now there's a guy who asks good questions and cares about me as an individual. He's not just going through the motions. I,
0: I, I hope that's what people would say. Um, I, I, again, that's that's what my intentions are. Um, it, it's, it's just something that, for me, uh, it, it's just one of those traits that's, that's extremely important for me that I I really want to help people. Um, and if helping is just listening, which is typically 75% of the battle, sometimes uh, a a lot of people just need an ear. And then, you know, if people ask for advice in whatever situation, then, then give honest advice. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that, that I actively work on and I, I, I hope that's how it's received by individuals.
1: Well, so my last question before you, and then I want to go to any open topic that we haven't covered. And I, we always do that with our guests, but what do you imagine, Jeff, is the 2024 focal area for your continued development as a corporate athlete? Like, have you thought about what the new and improved Jeff looks like by the end of 2024? What's a leadership skill or capability that you hope to add to your acumen? And then why did you pick
0: that one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so it's it's interesting because uh, you know I'm really coaching the my, my direct management team on people skills and you know how, how to be people leaders and stuff like that. And people scratch their head and go, you know, how does this come so natural? And I go, well, <laughs> I go, don't kid yourself. There's a ton of things I'm working on as well, uh, and and one of those main things is you know, I'm getting a lot more experience, uh, working with a board of directors well, and that. it's, it's a brand new skill that, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't come natural. Um, I'm naturally a, a very detailed person and just trying to communicate properly to the board is something that I'm really working on from a 2024 perspective. Um, and luckily I've, uh, again, I've got a pretty strong mentor with, uh, with Chris Wilkins, who's the chairman, he's really been coaching me extremely strongly and uh, yourself as well. Um, so, you know, again, if, if I don't have the skills, I'm going to reach out to people that I trust that's going to help me get there. Um, so that, that's probably my 2024 goal. I love it now. Okay. So I want you to imagine
1: that, let's say on a one to 10 skill, you're a three right now. Yeah. Why is it so important to get to a level of proficiency, say in the seven to eight range? in the next year or so. Why is that ability to engage with the board so critical to your success at Crofters and maybe beyond Crofters?
0: Um, I, I guess just because I envision in the next couple roles, uh, I'm hoping to be working with boards or, uh, you know, uh, maybe a future ambition is to be on a board and, and, and not just to sit at a table, but to be a, a valuable member. Um, but on the other side is probably that perfectionist, uh, a flaw of mine potentially of I've recognized a weakness and I want to make sure that I can convert that into a strength.
1: Yeah, so listen, to do
0: yeah, you know, it's
1: funny because you use that word perfectionist, and uh, <laughs> you and I have had some laughs about when it's to an extreme, you can let what's that expression you can you catch yourself doing the wrong things as well as the perfectionist, right? Chasing diminishing right. returns. But I yeah. think the way I know you, Jeff, is I would probably look at it more in terms of the positive connotation of something you mentioned a minute ago, you've got a way above average appetite for personal development. Like I just see some people are born with it. I think you were just born with it. Maybe you learned to be that way. Maybe the university thing kickstarted it. But I think it's actually one of the themes I see running through our podcast series is to a person, everybody I talk to, doesn't matter whether they're five years into their career or in some cases, 40 years into their career. Whenever I ask them, you know, what's the new and improved version of you, they're not stumped by that question. They're like you. They've they're they're constantly aware of it. they are always working on their game. Um, you know, I just uh, one of the folks that we've had the pleasure of interviewing is Mike Cluche from the life science industry. Well, Mike's probably towards the tail end of his career. He's probably 40 years in. But yet he's very aware that as a serial entrepreneur now with lots of byrons in the fire, he's had to learn how to manage uh, ROI. Um, analysis and sort of the portfolio of business opportunities and ventures and have a skill there that's far advanced from what he needed to have in corporate. And when we talked about his journey, that was top of mind for him. So, you know, I, I think it is a theme because I was just talking to someone earlier today when he said, so what have you learned from the podcast? I said, you know, a couple of have emerged and that's one of them. Um, the most successful leaders, which we've invited on these podcasts like yourself, Never stop learning and have that sort of modesty that Collins talked about in Good to Great. They, they're just students of the game, and they, they never consider themselves a finished product. And they act that way. They don't just talk that way. So good on you. And then I think the other thing that surprised me, and I mentioned this to my friend who asked, is, again, how much I'm seeing that empathy is a critical capability and i don't know if it was always that way and maybe it was and i missed it but i'm certainly much more appreciative of it now because man is that a theme that has run through these and i'm certainly I, I certainly think it's in in the skills that you have the arrows in your quiver I, I think jeff it's probably the one that defines your leadership strength as much as anything else does uh, in combination with your appetite and your ambition and you are somebody who really knows how to listen and make take advantage of the talent and the opportunity that you're surrounded with. And here you're going again, doing again in a, at, 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 at So, you know, at, uh, you know, at Crofter, Sorry, Crofter and that, you know, that's, I'm not surprised that you've been successful. It's probably surprised you and I a little bit, how quickly you've been able to move into this third phase of getting the whole team excited about the positive change, but run with it, man. It's a great place to be.
0: <laughs> no, I, 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 I appreciate it, Rob. And, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I I'm a little, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by your comments. So I'm a, I'm a little speechless by what you said there, but I, I do have to give you full credit as well. Um, you know, I I've learned just an insurmountable amount of knowledge from you and, and wisdom. And so one of the things that, that has kind of charged me up a bit as well, I've never been a book reader. Um, full transparency, I've, I've avoided it uh, quite a lot for the last couple of years. Uh, and recently, um, you know, in some books that you've referenced and, you know, the, the, the group that we're in, uh, the one thing I've really learned is if you want to be a strong leader, study to be a strong leader. It, it, it's as simple as that. Um, you know, you, you learn through experience and that will take you so far but you don't know what you don't know until you know what you don't know. And uh, the more you educate yourself and l- leadership is a subject you can educate yourself on, um, That that's how you can really self-propel yourself forward. So yeah, and, I, and, I, re- I really appreciate that from you. Oh,
1: Listen, Noah, and I'm glad. I'm usually just the shepherd like most consultants. I just steal ideas and give it to somebody else, right? So <laughs> I don't know if I've been an original thought my whole life, but – I think that that's important too. that other part of it. It's not just the reading, but it's having the courage to surround yourself with men and women who challenge you to, to grow, right. Whether they're mentors or, you know, the leader of impact group that you and I both belong to. And uh, those kinds of environments, as you go up the food chain, as you take on more responsibility, you just got to remember that keeping the the saw sharp, uh, especially in, advanced leadership roles Well, you got to surround yourself with accomplished leaders you can't just stay in your tribe where your comfort zone is you got to push yourself and still you know surrounding yourself with smart company and maybe men and women who are a little more grizzled and have a few more kilometers on their is not a bad place to start so you <laughs> know good on you anything For we sure. didn't talk about jeff that you wanted to gab a little bit about before we call it a night
0: uh, maybe two quick things. Um, sure. I, I think one, one thing I'd like to share that, that i found pretty successful from my side, um, you know, I, I, as you raise up in the organization, I find a lot of the leaders become very rigid and you, you get set in that, that mold and, you know, it's almost, almost viewed as being robotic in a way. Yeah. Um, I, I find, I, I try the opposite of that. So, you know, I try to I try to just be Jeff in every situation, and a strategy I kind of employ. I'm an absolute comic book movie nerd, yeah. and I, I kind of use that to my advantage. So, you know, during my uh, during town halls, I'll weave in some simple comic book questions just to get some laughs. Um, geez, we, we just had uh, uh, you know the the new president start, and during the interview process, I was lucky enough to be to be involved. When we we're having dinner. And uh, I looked at him. and I said, "Okay, Tim. You know, we've really grilled you with a ton of questions, and uh, you know, in reality, we've got we've got one question that's really heavily weighted over everything else." And he goes, oh, "Yeah, what what could that be?" I go, "Well, um, Batman or Superman." <laughs> and he kind of he kind of looks at me and he goes, "Superman." I go, "Oh God, I think we made the wrong decision. I'm naturally a Batman guy." So. Um, you know, it, it, it's fun because uh, that, that gets circulated throughout the site and then people start humanizing you versus putting you on that pedestal. And again, it just it just drives relationships a little better. I've, I've found myself anyhow. Oh, for sure. And what was the um, second
1: thing? You mentioned there's something else that
0: you want to make sure we talked about. Uh, second thing I just want to give huge kudos to, to my wife and and her support um, I, I'm absolutely loving the stage of the uh, of my career and working with crofters and uh, you know it really takes two to, to make it work if Julia wasn't on board and, and you know I still decided that would cause a, a, a ton of issues but uh, you know we've got really strong communication um, you know we're both extremely supportive for each other and boy, does it make a world of difference. Um, so the one learning, again, I've learned from you is learn how to be present in the moment because time goes by quick. Um, and that's what I'm really focused on from a family life and that positive enjoyment really translates into my working life because, you know, they're all interconnected. So oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, hundred percent. Well, listen, I
0: appreciate you
1: sharing that really important final point. Uh, Again, I had to learn that from my older brothers and sisters and my parents as role models and good friends and mentors. But, yeah, and my, and my lovely wife, Christine, always reminds me, especially when she wears her T-shirt that says, Happy Wife, Happy Life. <laughs> I got the message. You, know? you got it. <laughs> that's pretty straightforward.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's awesome.
1: Really appreciate, Jeff, your time. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, listen, we look forward to talking to you again.
0: Yeah. really appreciate it, Rob. And, uh, and hats off to you. Congrats to 20 years. That's, uh, that's an absolutely huge milestone. You should be extremely, extremely proud. Very blessed. Really, really good job.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Talk soon, Jeff. No problem.
0: Thanks, Rob.